Glad that you're here. Um, let's, let's pray and then we'll look at our subject matter. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think through this very, very important question of the Lord Jesus Christ and whether he claimed to be God, uh, give us understanding in this area. Help us to, as we um, think about it for a few minutes, to realize its importance and to wrestle with uh, the reality that is presented, that the Lord Jesus Christ understands himself in the scripture as your own son, as the one who uh, does your works and identifies himself with you, thus claiming to be nothing less than God the Son. Help us to understand uh, how this is put together in some small sense so that we might not only know it ourselves, but be able to tell others this as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, did Jesus really claim to be God? That's the, that's the question that uh, we're going to be looking at here. It's really part of the larger issue of uh, who do we say that he is? Crucial question. Let me begin with a poet, an anonymous poet, as well as Yaroslav Pelikan, who wrote a book on Jesus through the centuries. Two quotes that pick up this idea of the importance of Jesus, as well as questioning as to actually who he is. This anonymous poet, maybe you've heard this uh, poem before. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up, till, uh, he grew up still in another village where he worked until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, uh, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And this poet continues, 19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. Now that's this anonymous poet trying to reflect on Jesus, his importance in history, importance in civilization, uh, and asking the question that who is this person? Pelican says this, he says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, so people have different opinions, but regardless, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Of course, that raises the question as to who he is. Uh, diverse opinion on that, but uh, who is it that for many cultures around the world, I mean, particularly Western cultures, but even uh, Eastern cultures, who is this one who divides history into two? Who is this one where we have B.C., A.D., reflecting on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and then his death, resurrection? How do we understand this? This question as to who he is is found all the way back in the first century. Right? Uh, Matthew chapter 16 uh, and the parallels in the rest of the Gospels. Uh, key point in uh, sort of the ministry of Jesus, he's at Caesarea Philippi. 
he takes the opinion poll of the day. He asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there's a variety of responses that come. Uh, you are the Baptist, or you are a prophet, or uh, you are Elijah of old, and a whole variety of responses. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter uh, speaks on behalf of the disciples, and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One from the Old Testament. You are the Son of the Living God, picking up themes from the Old Testament that you are this unique one. You're this one who's related to the Father. You are the one who does his will. I mean, that, that's how Peter says it, and he says, blessed. Today, we have a whole variety of responses as well. Uh, Time, Newsweek, A&E, PBS, whatever you want to look at in terms of popular culture, uh, they give all kinds of different responses. Every Christmas and Easter, there's always something about Jesus. Uh, who is he? Uh, there's different uh, perspectives and viewpoints, different religious viewpoints about him as well. Uh, we have not only the Christian sort of heresies that come out of, uh, of uh, Christianity, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. We even have such a religion such as Islam that views him as a great prophet and, and merely a prophet, calling him uh, a messiah, or the word of God, but then taking those meanings and filling them full of meaning that's quite different than the, the Bible presents to him. So we have this, this uh, quite a mixed view of who he is. The testimony of the church throughout the ages, throughout the ages, the church all the way back to the, I would say back to the scripture, but right back to the first centuries, has said that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son. So the claim of deity, that he is God the Son. Now he's not God in the sense that there's no Father or Spirit, the Trinitarian relations, there's one God, but he is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. He is the one who takes upon human nature. He is the God-man now forever. And that has been the testimony of the church, and I also think it's the testimony of, of Scripture, but that is what the church has affirmed in contrast to all the various opinions that are out there. But uh, is this what Jesus taught? That's the question, right? Just by the very title, what did Jesus really teach? I mean, the church might have taught this, but has, uh, this, has Jesus taught us this? And of course, to answer that question, we have to go back to uh, the New Testament itself. Right? Now, uh, in a presentation like this, obviously uh, to defend uh, a view of Jesus and to go back to the New Testament, go back to the scriptures, we bring assumptions to the table. Right? The assumption I'm bringing that uh, I could defend at a, at a different point, but I mean, you can't say everything all at once, can you? So the assumption I'm bringing is that as we go to the scriptures, the scriptures are the word of God. The scriptures give us not only the disciples' uh, presentation of Jesus in a reliable way, but they also tell us what Jesus himself thinks. Right? There's some that will dispute that. I mean, there's various scholars such as the Jesus Seminar and other groups that will say, you know, you really can't know what Jesus said. I think we can because these documents are early, they're reliable, uh, they are the Word of God, they are the ones that describe what they think about Jesus as well as what Jesus thinks about himself. So when we go back to them, I'm not going to uh, spend time defending every single point of why I think this is the case. Uh, we're going to assume that as we uh, move along and say this is what the scriptures say about him. This is what he himself says as the scriptures accurately uh, record this. Uh, ultimately, why I think uh, we should affirm the scriptures as saying this is, um, 
and we've had uh, these college uh, sort of conferences before where over the last five years, two of the five years now have looked at the Bible. Right? So you can go back and get the CDs on that and, and look at that. But uh, in the end, I would argue that why I believe that we can go to the scriptures and uh, get this as accurate is, uh, first of all, uh, we take the Bible's claims seriously because they, it claims to be nothing less than God's word. That's the first place to begin. We don't make the Bible something that it is not. We don't say we wish the Bible is the word of God. That's precisely what it claims for itself. Now, others claim something similar, too. Not many religions claim to have a divine authority, um, like especially the scriptures. It's important to realize sometimes we're told that uh, all religions have their religious books and they're all equal. That's just not the case. The Christian view is unique because it's centered in a kind of God who is creator, revealer, who knows all things. So the kind of claim, the authority claim for the scripture is uh, head and shoulders over the Bhagavad Gita's and uh, other kinds of religious systems that do not believe in the Creator, do not believe in the Lord of the universe, do not believe in a God who knows all things, who has all authority. There are some religious viewpoints such as Mormonism that builds off of the Christian claim and in fact I would put Islam in this category as well is that in those kind of religions, they're living off of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the claim of the scriptures that this God has revealed himself to us. And just because they make that claim doesn't mean that uh, they can make good on that claim, that they can justify uh, that claim. In fact, if I had time, I would want to show that other scriptures that make a claim to be God's word are self-refuting on their terms, on their description of things. Uh, the Quran, for instance, uh, seeks to appeal uh, to the scriptures at the same time it contradicts the scriptures in historical details and theological details. The Quran denies the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, misunderstands Sheikh's sonship in a biological way as if uh, Jesus has been produced from God and Mary in some fashion. That's just not what the Christians have held. Or denies the deity of Christ, or denies the Trinity, but it depends upon those books. Well, there's a problem there. It's not the problem for the Bible, it's the problem for that which comes after and says it builds off of it. So that starting with the Bible's claim regarding itself is an important place to begin. Uh, and that's why we'll start there and the Bible can make good on those claims in its unified presentation and where it touches history and the reliability of these documents. So we'll take that for granted as we seek to, uh, to move and ask what does the New Testament teach regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? Did Jesus really claim to be God? Now, the short answer I would give to this is yes, he did claim to be God, but more. You say, well, what do you mean, more? Well, we have to be very careful how we answer this question. Jesus claims to be God, but he doesn't claim to be God in the sense that he alone is God and there's no Father and Spirit. He doesn't claim to be God in the sense that uh, he is God and he is not now the God-man. We have to preserve all of these truths here so that we preserve his incarnation at the same time he's both God and man that he is the second person of the Trinity. When we say that, is he really God? Did he claim to be really God? He really claimed to be God the Son. Uh, yes, he's claiming to be God, but God the Son in relationship to his Father, in relationship to the Spirit, uh, the one who has now become flesh and is both God and man. So all of that has to be kept together uh, in this claim. 
if we want to turn to chapter and verse and say, did Jesus say directly, I am God? We won't find that. That shouldn't surprise us. And there's a reason why that's the case, is because if he said, I am God, full stop, without adding some of those other elements in, it wouldn't be complete truth. He has to say, I am the Son in relation to the Father. I'm God the Son. To say, I am God, just full stop, would be denial of the Father. It would be denial of the Spirit. It would be denial of the fact that He is now the God-man. So you don't have that kind of explicit statement, but you have Him in His words and in His actions. You have Him saying, I have the very identity of the God of the Old Testament. I am equal with Him. I am the one who is in relationship to with him. I am the one who does his works. I am the one who carries on his mission. I am the one who does it because I am equal with second person versus father and spirit. Now we do have in a number of places where we do have texts, in fact we have seven of them, that explicitly apply this term or title, God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's John applies it. Thomas applies it, Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews applies it, but Jesus himself doesn't explicitly say in any place, I am God, uh, for the reasons I've given. But we do have seven, seven places, seven passages, where we have this title, and the term that is in the Greek is theos, where we get our word, say, theology. Theos is the word God that's found Oh, 1,300 times in the New Testament, and primarily it is a term that whenever you see it, it is speaking of God, God the Father. That's clearly how in the New Testament it develops, but seven times it is applied to Jesus Christ, and it's functioning as a title to say, in many ways, when you have the term theos applying to the Father, it's a kind of proper name. You and I have a first name, a kind of proper name. So God is God the Father. When it applies to Jesus Christ in these texts, it's taking a title in the sense that he is saying that this Jesus, who is one with the Father, is God equal with God. God equal with the Father. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, in fact, there's three examples in one book, the book of John. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 1. Here we have... John very carefully, and John, as he applies this title explicitly to the Lord Jesus Christ, is also preserving father-son relations as well as the fact that God, the second person of the Godhead took upon flesh. He became incarnate. Look what he says in John chapter 1. In fact, in John's gospel, we have it in, in John 1.1. 1, 1. In verse 18, and we also have it in 2028. 20, Three times this very, very important title is applied to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here John begins in verse 1. Verse 1 and 18, what's important here is this is the introduction to John's gospel. These first 18 verses which sort of set you up for the whole rest of the gospel. He goes back to creation. In the beginning was the Word. And that expression, word, is there's many, many titles that are applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. This word is rooted in the Old Testament context. The first time you see the word of God is at creation. God speaks his word and it brings the universe into existence. The word is associated also with 
the revelation of God, the word of the God comes to the prophets. The word of the God which brings about redemption and salvation. And this is a rich term that, that John picks up and he says, in the beginning was this word. And notice here, the word was, he has with God. Face to face. Now, God there would be predominantly the use here that would be picking up the Father. Uh, so that the word was with God. Face to face. The preposition is, is, is that he's in relationship with. Face to face with. And then you have the affirmation, the word was God. There the title is being applied. This word who's face to face with God has the very nature God, is equal with God. That's the emphasis here. So that this title is explicitly applied to the word. We know that the word is, in verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and be made his dwelling among us. And that we have seen his glory. Well, who is this? Well, this is Jesus Christ. This is the incarnate word. This is the word that came 2,000 years ago. The word always existed, but then the word became flesh uh, 2,000 years ago, who came from the Father. And there you have clearly the language of the Father, full of grace and, and truth. And then in verse 18, you have the same title applied. No one has ever seen God, but, and then our translations, each translation translates a little differently here, but the way that it can be translated from the original is, is, is God the unique one. Referring to this word again, the God, the unique one. But the title God is applied to him. God, the unique one or the begotten one. Um, who is at the Father's side, picking up with the Father, has made him known. And so here in these two places, you have the direct application of this title God to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can say John called him God. All right? Now Jesus doesn't say this himself. But John is saying right here, this word who's with God was God. Right? And you have it then picked up here. You also have this in John 20, 28. This is Thomas's confession after the resurrection. Uh, the, the, the disciples were not expecting uh, a suffering Messiah. Uh, Jesus had been announcing to them through the Gospels that he was going to the cross to die, to fulfill the plan of God, to bring salvation to deal with sin, to provide forgiveness. And uh, they weren't expecting it, so thus resurrections. I mean, he's not expecting resurrections either. Uh, Thomas wasn't with the original 11 when uh, he was confronted, uh, when they were confronted with Jesus and says, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to believe until I can see his hands, until I can see his side. And Jesus appears to Thomas and Thomas sees him and says, my Lord and my God. There's the title God, Theos applied. Um, so he's, he's making this affirmation of worship and saying, this is who you are. You're my Lord. You're my God. Now, remember, this is in a Jewish context here. This isn't, uh, you know, New Age religion. This isn't uh, Hinduism. This isn't some background where we think we're one with the universe and one with God. In a Jewish context here, these are monotheists who believe that there's a creator. He alone is to be worshipped and praised and no one else. So for Thomas to make this affirmation, my Lord and my God, and bring worship to him is something else. Now, whenever that happens in Scripture, uh, when someone falls down before an angel and begins to worship the, you know, the angel, Revelation 19, for instance, will say, get up off your feet. I'm just an angel. Don't worship me. When Paul and Silas are uh, preaching the gospel 
and uh, they, they do a miracle and they say, the gods are among us. They pull their clothes and they say, we are not gods. Worship God alone. But here we have the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say explicitly, I am God, but Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then he pronounces a blessing on him. Uh, he says here, because you've seen me and you have believed, blessed are those. So, I mean, you get pretty close to him. He doesn't say it directly, but he is affirming what he has said. And that kind of evidence is, is, is found everywhere. So that uh, we don't have him explicitly saying this, but we have explicit statements. And you also find it in um, uh, Romans 9.5 is another place. Uh, Second Titus. Uh, let me make sure I get my reference here. 2.13 or Titus 2.13. In 2 Peter 1, 1 and uh, Hebrews 1, 6. These are the seven references where this very, very important term of deity, of God, is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. But even though the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't say it explicitly, there's two pieces of, of sort of data that are important here. And this is talked about in terms of two terms, implicit and explicit. I said, uh, did Jesus really claim to be God? And I said, yes and more. In the sense that implicitly by his words and actions, he is saying, I am nothing less than God. Uh, he's saying, I'm the God man, I'm Messiah, but he's saying he's deity, God equal with the Lord of the Old Testament. Explicitly, in terms of explicit statements of he makes regarding himself, he is saying the same thing. Let me give you a couple of examples of these. For instance, implicitly, he makes himself an object of faith. In terms of the Old Testament context, only God is to be worshipped, only God is to be believed in, only God is to be trusted. You only place your faith in God alone. You turn to a passage such as John 14, for instance, and, and you sort of just walk by it. But, but, but in the context of the scriptures, this is very, very important. It's implicit deity that he is affirming here. John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Now that's, old, that's, that's what the Bible says. Trust in God. Trust in God alone. Only look to him. We don't look to any other. And then he says, trust also in me. He just puts side by side two objects of faith in some sense. Trust in him, trust in me. If you trust in me, you trust in him. Uh, we'll see this when we come to John 5 where you have this close relationship of father and son. They're not, they're not the same person, but they are the ones that are intimately related, have the same authority, the same identity. They are one with each other in the sense that they share in the one uh, nature. So you see that kind of issue there, same object of saving faith or forgiveness of sins. Uh, implicitly he comes, and this moves pretty explicitly. You think of Mark chapter 2, which is uh, important here. Jesus is caring about his ministry. Uh, a paralytic is brought to him, and uh, this, this, the, the friends bring him, and they got flat roofs in this time, and they go up the side of the home, and they peel off the roof, and they send him down in the middle because all the doors were jammed and couldn't get in. And uh, as he comes down, Jesus says to him in Mark 2, 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, well, no one can forgive sins but God. And the teachers of the law are there. The, at this point, they, they're thinking right theologically. Mm -hmm. Teachers of the law are there saying to themselves, what, what, what's this fellow talk like? 
Who's, he's blaspheming. Uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. They're exactly right. But the problem is they misunderstand who Jesus is. So immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to get up and take your mat and walk? He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, get up and walk. He puts both of these together. I've got the same power to heal him. I've got the same power, authority to speak this way. Even this term son of man doesn't mean um, I'm just a man. I mean, it's coming out of the Old Testament context of Daniel 7 where the son of man is, is, takes on deity. He is the one who rides in the clouds of heaven. Son of man is a very favorite expression of the Lord Jesus that, that carries on notions of Messiah as well as deity that come together. But here you have this just by his very action. He forgives sins. Uh, he heals. He's the one who uh, takes on the very authority of God. That's a kind of implicit claim to deity. In fact, he's doing this outside of the temple. In the Old Testament context, you receive forgiveness by taking your lamb to the priest at the temple. And he stands outside of that whole situation and says, I pronounce forgiveness of sins because I have authority authority that has been given to him so that again that's a kind of implicit uh, testimony he claims to be the judge we'll come back to that he he ushers in the kingdom the gospels are centered in the coming of the kingdom of God you have the beatitudes uh, the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven uh, you have the parables the sower the weeds all of these are parables of the kingdom and Jesus is the one who ushers in that kingdom. Now, just in a moment, we'll come to the sort of the Old Testament context. But any Jew who knows about the kingdom, it's an implicit claim to deity who ushers in the kingdom. Because from the Old Testament perspective, the only person who can usher in the kingdom is God. I mean, you have to remember that all of this, Jesus doesn't say words and does actions in a vacuum. He says it within the Old Testament context. And so these actions take on meaning. These words take on meaning and significance in a very, very important way. Or explicitly, he calls himself Son of Man. I mentioned that title. He calls himself the Son, the unique relationship with his Father. Or a passage such as John 8, 58. Here, I mean, you have... If Jesus nowhere explicitly says, I am God, this is about the closest it comes. Right? You have in uh, Thomas, him saying, you are my Lord and God, and him blessing him. That's pretty close. But John 8, 58, here's the context of con controversy with the religious leaders. Um, he goes back and he says in verse 56, your father Abraham, Abraham, the father of the Jews, the uh, crucial pivotal figure in history, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, Abraham lived thousands of years ago and they rightly sort of think to themselves, what are you talking about? Saw your day? I mean, you're not even 50 years old yet and, and you think Abraham's seen you? I mean, he was thousands of years ago. And he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now this expression, I am, is found a number of times in the, in the New Testament. You have I am with then what we call a predicate. I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the bread of life, I am the 
vine, various ways to describe. But we have a number of places, and this is probably the most significant, where it just says, I am. You go back to Exodus chapter 3, and you now know what this I am is getting at. It, it, any Jew would have known what this I am is all about. So in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is told to go into the nation of Egypt to free the people, uh, Moses is a little concerned here. Moses is a little nervous. And he says, um, verse 13 of Exodus 3, uh, Suppose I go to the Israelites and, they, and, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask of me, what, what's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now we get the word I am, the word Lord in our English translations, Lord often in our newer English, Lord in capitals, L-O-R-D with all caps. It's really the name where we get Jehovah or Yahweh, often pronounced from the, from the Hebrew. This is the name of God, the covenant name of God that he reveals himself. He has many names, but this is the one name of God that he reveals himself in the Old Testament as the Lord. Uh, I am. Uh, idea of, of self-existent one, eternal one, but it comes to be the name of God. When Jesus then in, in John 8, 58 says, before Abraham was, I am, full stop. He's not just saying, I am the door. He's saying, I am. The Jews know. I mean, we know that they react because in verse 59 of John 8, after, after this, they picked up the stones to stone him. Stone him because you stone somebody for blasphemy. They said, wait a second, he's taking the very name of God upon himself. He, he pronounces forgiveness of sins. He does the things that God does. He's taken this very name. We want to stone him. Well, we know that's a kind of explicit uh, testimony to his deity. Uh, uh, he doesn't have to say, I am God. I mean, here's about the closest thing, I am. He takes on the very name of God upon himself. So in these areas, we have Jesus by his words, by his actions, uh, saying things that if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, he's very clear as to what he actually is saying and the people around him see it. Now, I, I said before that to make sense of many of these uh, implicit and explicit kinds of claims, it's important to place Jesus within his Old Testament context. Right? Uh, Jesus doesn't come popped out of nowhere. Right? He, the New Testament is not written in a vacuum. Right? It's tied to the whole plan of God. God has revealed himself uh, through the ages. He's the creator. He entered into covenant relationship with his people uh, through Adam and through Noah and through Abraham and through Israel and the prophets have come. Hebrews 1 says that in the past God spoke in many ways, diverse manners, through the prophets. Right? And in the Old Testament we have the unfolding story of God. It doesn't come to us all at once. God redeems his people across time. He unfolds his plan and as he unfolds his plan he, he shows uh, how he is going to bring redemption. He shows ultimately, as the New Testament uh, says, that it shows how it leads us to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the anticipation of this Messiah, this anointed one to come who brings salvation. Now it's in that Old Testament context that Jesus comes and he is seen as the one, he sees himself as the one who fulfills it. The word fulfill is the idea that that to which God was pointing has now arrived. That which he has planned has now come. That which he has promised has now come to pass. 
And it's important to sort of just think about sort of the storyline of the Old Testament to see how it is that when Jesus comes and makes claims and does actions, both sort of in an implicit and explicit way, it's, it's built into this whole Old Testament structure. If we are to think of Old Testament sort of history, the, the history of the Old Testament, we would draw it, I think, in terms of a kind of line, a timeline. Uh, the idea of history where everything begins at creation and the Bible presents us with a, a certain view of who God is. Uh, unlike, you know, pantheistic views that say everything is one. No, the Christian view, the whole Old Testament presents us with a God who is independent of this world. He is the creator, he is the Lord, but he is also the one who's personal. He enters into relationships with creatures. In fact, he's made us image bearers to know him, to, to love him, to serve him. But the scripture then says, this is sort of Genesis 1 and 2. If you then pick in Genesis 3, you have the fall. Something desperately has gone wrong in human history. Right? In Genesis 3, it's presented as two individuals, Adam, Eve, in history where they make a choice to turn against God and rebel against Him. And this world then becomes fallen. Uh, sin reigns. Sin, breaking God's commands and going against His revealed will. Death now enters into the, the human race. God says, if you sin, you die. And so the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. And so sin and death enter this world, and God could have just left it go. But He says, I will bring salvation. I will bring I will promise to bring a restoration of my old created order. I will bring a new creation to come. And the Old Testament look, as it goes across the era and across time, really divides time into kind of two, two time periods. You can almost look at, they look at history in terms of two ages. They look at the future age, that's the age to come. Right? As they are sitting here in history, they look forward to a future day. And this period of time until that day arrives is known as this present age. Not very brilliant terminology, but it just picks up the idea that we live in the present age and we look forward to the future age. As you look through the Old Testament, we'd have to develop this, but I mean, as you look through the Old Testament, the age to come, right, will ultimately come by Messiah. Here you have the strong Old Testament theme of God sending one who is Messiah, who will rule and reign. And, and this Messiah is, 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 is pictured and foreshadowed a whole number of ways, particularly uh, it's pictured as the, the one as a king, and this king who comes in the Davidic line. That's why when you open up the Gospels, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is born of the tribe of Judah. He's born in Bethlehem, David's city. Uh, he is David's greater son. And there's Old Testament references, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. I mean, you've got all these passages that anticipate the coming of this Messiah who will reverse the effects of the fall, who will bring salvation. And that ultimately is typified in a whole sacrificial system, the need for a payment of sin and atonement or substitution where sin must be dealt with. But you have this theme of Messiah. And when this age comes... This will be the age of salvation. It will be the age where God brings judgment upon his enemies. Here is the age where it will literally be a, a new creation. Right? The kingdom will come. Tied to the notion of the king will be the kingdom. And tied to the notion of kingdom here, 
is the whole sort of saving reign of God. The saving reign of God will break into this world. It will put away sin and death and destroy the power of ultimately uh, the evil one. So you have this theme of Messiah. And Messiah will usher in this future age. And also, so you have this notion of king, human. I mean, he comes in David's line. He comes in that way. But he's also the Lord. And these, these two ideas come together in the theme of Messiah in the Old Testament. You can see it in a passage such as, really, here's many examples, but Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, or Ezekiel 34. You can look at Ezekiel 34, but Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, these are famous Christmas passages that we celebrate at Christmas, where Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we have this, For unto us a child is born. A son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be a king. He will rule. He'll take that mantle upon him. And then you go down to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. Here's the whole notion that when this king comes, who comes in David's line, he'll sit on David's throne. He'll have the government on his shoulder. He will rule and reign forever, ever. But notice the titles that are given to you halfway through verse 6. He will be called. These are the titles of God. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Father of Eternity. Prince of Peace. Here you have these two ideas come together. He'll be human. He'll be like David, but greater. But he's the Lord. The same thing that you see in Ezekiel 34 as well. So that from the Old Testament look, This Messiah who will come will bring in this age to come, and this age to come is identified ultimately with the salvation that the Lord brings, the salvation that God alone brings through His Messiah. You see elements of that in Psalm 2, Psalm 45. There's a whole list of Messianic passages that we don't have uh, time to go through. Now, why is that important? Because once you see, this is getting at implicit, implicit which moves quickly do explicit. Once you see Jesus come on the scene in the Gospels, what does he announce? He announces that he is the one and he's the only one who ushers in this age. He announces it by saying the kingdom of God is here. He announces it by his very miracles and actions. He casts Satan out, Matthew 12, 28, and says this is evidence that the kingdom is here. Now, in light of the Old Testament, the very fact that he ushers in this kingdom, he ushers in the new creation, in fact, even from his very birth, his very conception, really, there's not much miraculous about the birth so much as the conception. The scripture presents the conception as a, as a virgin conception, where you have the Spirit coming over What's the emphasis here? Well, where do you see the Spirit in the Old Testament? The Spirit hovers over creation when God brings His creation into existence. Here you have now the new creation. You have the breaking in. You have the Son now entering, the Word becoming flesh. You have the new creation taking place. And you have this one who is the Lord, who is also the King, who is human, who will come and He ushers in this reign and He ushers in the kingdom. That is how it ultimately is presented. So that this already, the very announcement of the kingdom is an announcement that He is God incarnate. 
That's what it's saying. He is God Messiah. He is a Messiah who is God, who is identified with the Lord, who does things that only the Lord can do. Turn to Matthew 11, and this is where we begin to see sort of Jesus' own identity of how he sees himself. In light of what I've said regarding the Old Testament in that very sketchy way, Jesus himself sees him in this, himself in this line. In fact, in Matthew 11, we have some of the highest sort of presentation uh, of, of Jesus' own understanding of himself, this kind of implicit uh, view of himself. Here's where Jesus not only views himself as, as ushering in this kingdom, but he views himself as, as the centerpiece of all of human history. That in him he has brought all of God's plans and purposes to pass. And he identifies himself in this chapter as nothing less than the Son who has the very authority of the Father. Look at in Matthew 1 where the occasion here is where John the Baptist uh, the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner who points to him and says, there's the Messiah. John has sent some of his disciples to Jesus and, and says, you know, are you the one that we are to expect? And verse 4, Jesus replies, and all of his reply is in terms of what the Old Testament expected in terms of the kingdom. Uh, tell John that you see the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, those with leprosy cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. The, what's he saying? The kingdom is here. I'm ushering in the kingdom. These miracles aren't just sort of happenstance. They are evidence of God's breaking into this world. And then as John's disciples leave in verse 7, Jesus speaks about the importance of John. Uh, he says, what did you go to see? Uh, John, uh, as a politician, swayed back and forth in the wind? No, no, John stood firm. John didn't live in a palace. John was a very important individual. In fact, he says in verse 9 that he was a prophet, but more than a prophet. What's he mean more than a prophet? Well, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He quotes from Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John is the forerunner. And then he says this astounding statement, which is the most egocentrical statement of Jesus in all. I mean, listen what he says here. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement, isn't it? What about Moses and David and Elijah and all these? No one greater than John the Baptist of those born of women. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You say, well, how can that be? If he's the greatest of women, the least, the smallest, the most insignificant, the kingdom that I am inaugurating, he says, I am beginning, anybody who's in that kingdom is greater than John. Now he goes on to tell you why in verse 13. This is how Jesus views all of history. For all the prophets and the law, now, what's the prophets and the law? The prophets and the law is this whole Old Testament era, right? Uh, what we find in the Old Testament scriptures. All the Old Testament, the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, picking up again Malachi as a prophecy. Uh, let me illustrate by what Jesus is saying here, right? Say I come to the BSU or or um, you know college or church or something, and one of you introduces me. He says, you know, here. Here's the speaker, and da 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 da, and uh, it's Bob who introduces me, and uh, and, and I, I get up and say, oh, thank you for that introduction, Bob. Um, you know, I just want you to know, people, that Bob here is the most important person 
he's the most important person born about any anybody around. And then you just you just go on and praise Bob for how important he is, and people are thinking, wow. And then you say, you know why Bob's so important? Because Bob introduced me. And you're like, oh my goodness, who do you think you are? Yeah. But that's what Jesus is saying. You see, he, he views John as so important because John lives along these whole line of prophets, but he is he's greater than Moses because Moses lived thousands of years before Jesus. He didn't have the privilege that John had. John actually lived in the same time period and could say and look Jesus in the eye and say, there he is. No other prophet had that privilege. But you see, Jesus is seeing all of history in terms of his coming. All of the law and the prophets prophesy until John and then it's me. And, and everyone who enters my kingdom, he says, is the one who is the least is greater than anyone before because they know me. Right? That's the point that he's saying. He views all of history in that way, and he views the kingdom intimately tied to him. And then you go over in the rest of the chapter as he goes through verse uh, uh, 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. All things. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and to whom he chooses to reveal him. Come to me and I will give you rest. So here you have this one who says, I'm in intimate relation with the Father, the Word who's with God, the Word was God. Trinitarian issues. But he says, I'm the one who's the center figure in history. All the Father has given to me, he says, and I make that known to you. No one knows the Father except the Son and vice versa. I mean, these are staggering claims. I mean, he doesn't have to say, I am God. I mean, this is, this is the same thing. I mean, this is implicit as well as leading to a kind of explicit uh, kind of, of, of testimony. So that these are the kind of evidence in, in, in him casting out demons and his transfiguration and his miracles, relationship to the Old Testament. He views himself as like no other. He views himself as literally the Lord who comes. He takes on the very identity of the Lord of the Old Testament. He receives praise and worship. We already mentioned John 20, 28, Thomas, my Lord and my God. And he says, blessed are you. Turn to John 5. John 5 is another incredible passage where Jesus views himself in the most incredible ways. John 5, I'm really thinking of here in terms of worship, verse 22 and 23. But let me just run through the text just quickly here in verse 16. To see what Jesus is saying, uh, you have to again understand the, the Old Testament background here. Because Jesus was doing these things in the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the, the sixth day for the Jew was to rest. All people were to rest on it. And uh, Jesus was working on the Sabbath. He was healing on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders were saying, you're wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. And what does Jesus say in verse 17? He says, well, my father's at work on the Sabbath to this very day. I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. And you say, well, why, why he healing on the Sabbath would make you equal with God? We have to know the Jewish controversy here. All human beings aren't to work on the Sabbath. But there was a debate that took place, and we might think this is sort of a, a trivial debate, but it's important in this context here. Does God work on the Sabbath? And there were some that said, you know, the Sabbath is so important, God doesn't even work on the Sabbath. He takes a rest too. And then the other said, well, if God took a rest on the Sabbath, then the universe would cease to exist. Right? So they said, no, 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 no. 
God works on the Sabbath, we don't. And so they had all come to agreement, basically, that God works, and that's no problem when he works on the Sabbath, uh, because he's God. And do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus said in verse 17, My Father is always at work. You, you agree? I mean, God's always at work. My Father's always at work. And not only this close relation, my Father is always at work uh, to this very day, and I too am working. God works in the Father, my Father works in the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can do what I want on the Sabbath. I mean, that's the basic point. I am God. I work on the Sabbath. That's why they come and they say he was even making himself equal with God. It's an implicit claim to deity. And then he goes on in verse 19. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. You know, some people say, well, nothing by himself. He can't be equal with God. Well, no, there's role relations between father and son here. But notice the things that he does. He says, I can only do what, the, what I see the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Well, what's the father do? Creates and rules and judges and saves. He does all of that. He does all of the works of the father. For the father loves the son in verse 20 and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead, only God raises the dead. He gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Just as the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. And then you come to worship here. He's done this so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Can you imagine that? I mean, I mean, you'd have to be nuts to say that, unless it's true. Where he says, all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. And then he goes, makes it even stronger. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. So he's the one who raises, the, he gives life, he raises the dead, he judges them. He's the one who receives the same honor as the Father, and he is the one who gives eternal life, and he has authority to judge, he has authority to forgive. I mean, again, these are implicit, but they're also moving to quite explicit claims. He is claiming nothing less than, I am the Lord. I am the God of the Old Testament, I am identified with my Father. And he says it very carefully. He doesn't come and say, I am God as if there's no Father or no Spirit. He makes it very clear there's a Father, and I am one with that Father. I am equal with that Father. What the Father does, I do. What uh, he commands, I obey. Uh, he is the one I carry out his will and purpose because I am God equal with him. Of no angel, of no human or anyone else could one say uh, such a thing. And then you have explicit Christology, his, his use of this title, son. Son does not mean, have, doesn't have any kind of biological connotations to it or anything. Son is rooted back in the Old Testament. There is a theme of son that's tied all the way back to the king. The kings of the Old Testament were viewed as sons of the Lord. They were in a special relationship, a unique relationship. And that theme is then carried through where Jesus uses this expression, my father, Abba father, is Aramaic, where no Jew ever would say that, but he says he's my father and distinguishes us from his relationship to the father, where he is now a unique son, not just a human son, but a unique son who is from, as John says, from all eternity. 
Uh, he is the Word uh, in that way. Look at what Jesus says in John 17. You have this kind of identity of Jesus as he prays uh, before his death to the Father. It's called the high priestly prayer. He says, John 17, 1, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him all authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those who have given him. Now this is eternal life. Not only does he give eternal life, but this is what eternal life is, that they may know you. Well, that's certainly the case of the Old Testament. To know God is eternal life. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Here he is, to the same object of, of, of life, worship, faith. He just identifies himself with the Father. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, my Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Not only is this pre-existence, but he is now tied back in John's Gospel to John 1.1. In the beginning, this is eternality. This is eternal pre-existence. He's been in this relationship and he came and he now uh, glorifies the Father uh, in this fashion. So we see a variety of ways that you have this explicit kind of statement. Forgiving sins, I have the Son of Man have authority. The term Son of Man, the favorite designation of Jesus, comes right out of Daniel 7 where the, he rides in the cloud. He has the divine authority that is given to him. So we begin to think, I mean, there's much more data that we can look at. He exercises judgment. He gives life. He gives salvation. And particularly in this context, he ushers in all of the saving reign of God. Did Jesus really claim to be God? Well, not in one text, sense of, I am God. But by his words, by his actions, by his implicit words and actions by his explicit words and actions. He says that he is God the Son. He says that he is in relation to the Father who is the Lord and he takes on the very identity of that Lord. He is God equal with. That's why later in the history of the church the creeds began to as they began to put this data together to be say that the Son is God equal with the Father. The Spirit, and we haven't touched on the work of the Spirit and the person of the Spirit, but the Spirit is God equal with the Father. One God in three persons. And that's clearly presented in terms of father-son relationships here. He identifies himself with the Lord of old. C.S. Lewis, the famous um, British uh, um, English scholar and uh, writer of Christian literature and Narnia series and all of these things, a uh, friend of Tolkien with the Lord of the Rings, uh, he had this trilemma, he always said, that uh, we're presented with when we look at this kind of data that Jesus says regarding himself. Uh, he says, look, I mean, you, you take what Jesus says, I mean, he's, either, he's just either nuts, right? He's either a, a kind of, of lunatic, right? Uh, the religious leader said, who does this guy think he is? I mean, he's blaspheming, this is ridiculous. But then what do you do with a person that says, um, what's easier, to say forgiveness of sins or to heal the paralytic? Well, then somebody says, um, uh, you're, you're doing it under the power of Satan. That's what the religious leader said. Uh, Beelzebub, Satan is the power you do it. And he says, that's strange because uh, why would I be casting out demons that Satan would be divided against himself? No, 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 no. This is evidence of the power of God. This is evidence of the kingdom. This is evidence of the Lord breaking in to bring restoration to this fallen world. They couldn't charge him with being a lunatic. They couldn't charge him with being a liar. 
God is with him. He speaks with authority. He stands up and says, Thus says the Lord, and here I am, and I say unto you. And he acts the way Yahweh, acts the way Jehovah acts. And so Lewis said, you know, you're left with this conclusion. If he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, then he must be who he says he is. And, and that's the thing. I mean, when people come after and try to make him something else, make him a prophet, make him a religious leader, make him a wise revolutionary or cynic or sage, it's not doing justice to who he says. Who does he say he is? He says that he is nothing less than the Lord, the I Am, the one who is in relation to his Father from all eternity, who comes and wins for us our salvation, fulfilling God's plan to bring about uh, the forgiveness of sins and the payment of our sins so that we might be made right with Him. That's who He's presented to be. And so I think the scriptural evidence leads in that direction uh, strongly. Uh, he claims to be God the Son. And so uh, as we answer this question, I think that's the kind of answer that uh, we have to give.